0: Hello. This is the Fiction Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Bibi Guneshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel *Love Marriage*.
1: And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel *The Good Lieutenant*. Wait, so,
0: wait a okay, second. Wait going...
1: a second. Happy birthday.
0: Oh, <laughs> thank you.
1: We're actually tearing you away from your own birthday party to record this podcast. So I just want all the listeners to bow down in appreciation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate that. Um, And today um, we are going to be going back to our roots um, with this episode because we are very specifically going to be talking about an issue that has been in everyone's Twitter feed these days and all over the evening news and has already been tackled, of course, in literature.
1: That's right. This will be our third podcast on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first two, uh, which you can go back and find in our feed, were all about current events on the ground. But in this episode, we want to look at two previous wars involving the Russian army, including a war that Vladimir Putin oversaw directly, and see how that history might give us a more long-term bird's eye view of what we can expect in Ukraine.
0: So specifically, we want to talk about the first and second Chechen Wars in 1994, 95, and 99, 2000. And the literature part of this is that we're going to look at those wars through the reporting and writing of author and journalist Scott Anderson, who covered the first war in Chechnya and has written about Vladimir Putin's personal involvement in
1: starting the second war. Scott is a veteran war correspondent who has reported from Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Northern Ireland, Chechnya, Sudan, Bosnia, El Salvador, Iowa City, and many other strife-torn countries. A frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine, his work has also appeared in Vanity Fair, Esquire, Harper's, and Outside. He is the author of the novels Midnight Hotel and Triage, and of many nonfiction books, including The Man Who Tried to Save the World, and The Four O'Clock Murders, and Fractured Lands. His book, Lawrence in Arabia, was a New York Times uh, and Sunday Times bestseller, and was shortlisted for the U.S. National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography. His most recent book, The Quiet Americans, was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Welcome back, Scott.
2: Thanks, man. It's good to be back.
1: So you and I were talking by phone the other day, and I was trying to get you to help me find some Ukrainian journalists, (laughs) which you did not do. Which I did not do. Although some neighbor who might have some IT people in Ukraine. (laughs) Whatever. We didn't do that. We did find someone. Um, But you did say something fascinating, which was that you thought Putin was making some of the same mistakes or doing some similar things. Uh, in Ukraine that he did during the Second Chechen War in 1999 through 2000. So we decided to have you on to talk about that. And to be clear, we're recording this on March 5th. So lots of things are likely to change on the ground in Ukraine by the time this podcast drops. The goal here is to talk about what Russia's wars in Chechnya can tell us about Putin and the Russian army and the conflict in Ukraine in the long run. So what are the similarities and differences? And to do that, we want to start with a little history.
0: So, Scott, your book, The Man Who Tried to Save the World, is set during the first Chechen War, which is in 94-95, and the second was in 99-2000, and Putin was involved in the second war and was around for the first. Can you set the stage for us a little bit here about who was in charge during the first and second Chechen wars, and were they about the same thing?
2: Yeah, so so Chechnya is this, it's a small... <sighs> Kind of mini mini independent republic or autonomous region in down by the Caspian Sea, um, kind of close to the Turkish border. Um, the Chechens of the, the Chechen people. First of all, they're Muslim, and second of all, they're they're of Turkic origin, not Slavic like most most Russians. Um, but the Chechens have always they've always been fiercely independent, and they've they've. They f- they fought against the Russians going back to the time of the Czars. They also were uh, controlled a lot of the the, the mafia uh, during the during the, co- the communist era. Um, so there is this whole underworld aspect of 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 the Chechens. So they're both feared and hated by the, the kind of Russians at large. I mean, if it, to, to you know use broad generalizations. Um, so in the first Chechen war, they were ba- basically uh, went to war against uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin, who was the president of, of Russia at the time, uh, because they wanted their independence uh, in Chechnya. Che- Chechnya is a tiny country. It's I think it's the size of Connecticut, um, three four million people, and the Russian army came rolling into Chechnya to squash them, and they just got their asses kicked by the Chechens. Chechens are 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 ruthless and very good fighters, and they famously wiped out a a, a, a Russian force moving into the capital city of Grozny. killed a thousand guys in one afternoon. Um, So basically what happened in the First Chechen War is the Chechens essentially won and they they by and large got their independence and and Boris Yeltsin essentially declared victory and went home. Um, In 1999, so this is four years after the First Chechen War has kind of come to an end, um, he he chooses Vladimir Putin as his third prime minister of the year. His Yeltsin's prime ministers are just it's a musical chairs things. No one's heard of of, of Vladimir Putin at this point. Shortly after, within about a month after Putin, who comes out of the KGB, um, about a month after he becomes prime minister, all of a sudden there's a series of of apartment building bombings in Moscow, uh, in which these badly built, apartment buildings has collapsed, hundreds of people are killed. It's blamed on the Chechens. It's blamed on Chechen terrorists. And, and Putin uses this as a pretext to start the second Chechen war. He's the, and at this point, he's running the show. Um, Yeltsin steps down, Putin, right at the end of 1999, Putin takes over, he, his approval rating goes from 4% to 92%, uh, uh, something like that. Because the, the idea that, he, He's kicking the hell out of the Chechens. He's he's just turning. He's flattening the country. Actually, plays very well with with most Russian people. <laughs> that frankly, they, they 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 love it. And and so this is the beginning of the rise of Putin. Uh, and he and he kind of never looks back. Um, so what happened in in the second Chechen war, as I said, the, the Russians just just steamrolled the country, killed. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people flattened, flattened Grozny, the capital, uh, and just laid waste. And, and so today uh, uh, Putin put in a, a puppet regime uh, headed by uh, essentially a thug, a mafia thug named Ketarov. Um, and so the Chechnya is completely subdued and, and essentially squashed. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the background of, of for Chechnya.
1: And we're going to talk about both wars, and, and we'll get to the the one that Putin ran and how that affected uh, the way that, that – how that might affect things in the future. But I also want to talk about that first war. Um, I'm familiar with it because I knew you when you were doing the reporting for the man who tried to save the world, um, which is set during that war mostly. And right. um, I remember you saying that out of all the war zones you'd covered, Chechnya was the scariest place you'd ever been. I mean, you were really – traumatized by being there. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk about why that was the case and read a passage to us from that book describing the conditions of that war.
2: Sure. You know, I used to have a, a great visual to, to to offer about why Chesh was so terrifying. Unfortunately, as I've gotten older, I have more white hair. But when we first met, I don't know if you remember this, but... Right here, I had a shock of white hair, and, and I didn't yeah. have any other. I didn't have any other white hair. It's still a little bit there, but it's it's just diluted by other it's uh, white hairs. <laughs> right. So, I was in Chechnya during the first Chechen war for three and a half weeks, and I was you know I was, I was staying in bombed out buildings, and I, basically I didn't you know bathe for three and a half weeks. I get back to Moscow, take my first shower. And I look in the mirror, and I have this shock of white hair. Um, And it came up, and I had no white hairs before I went to Chechnya. So the the white hair came up in in (laughs) three and a half weeks. Um, So what made made Chechnya so terrifying was that, I think I've been to 13, 14 wars at this point. It's the only place where I've been where every moment I was there, I felt that in the next instant, the next second, some crazy thing could happen uh, and I could, I would never see it coming. It, it, it was, I, and I've never, I've never experienced that before where the, the people I was with, and I was with both sides, I was with the Russians and I was with the Chechens, um, we, we came so close to being executed by both sides a, a number of times. Um, you'd roll down the road and you'd come to a, you'd come to a checkpoint on, on the road and you couldn't tell if it was Russians or Chechens because they were dressed in the same uniforms. You usually could tell the difference because... because you kind of figure it out because the Chechens actually had better Russian army uniforms than the Russian soldiers did. You could also figure it out because if there were bodies around, if people who had been killed, that was they were it was probably a Russian checkpoint because the Russians were killing people at these checkpoints all the time. Um, nice. Yeah, so it was just a horrifying place. Um, so yeah, you said you wanted me to read a, a passage which... So I'll, I'll, um, I'll do that. Um, to imagine this war and the way it was fought, it might be easiest first to try to forget what you know about war. Forget the mass formations of the Civil War or the gruesome stalemate of trench warfare or the beachheads of World War II or even the jungle ambushes of Vietnam. In, imagine instead a bright still day, early afternoon. You're standing on a narrow farm road elevated above the surrounding land. To one horizon, the fields stretch away in plots of green and brown, neatly delineated by windbreaks of tall, thin trees. To the other, the fields gradually give over to gold-colored foothills, then pine forests, and in the farthest reaches, a massive wall of rugged snow-capped peaks. Along the shoulder of the road are wildflowers. A short distance from where you stand, maybe three miles away, there's a small village over which four helicopters perform an intricate aerial dance. While one of the helicopters hovers directly above the village center to fire rockets down into the houses, the others circle in a tight orbit, providing cover with cannon and machine gun fire. When the first gunship is done, it slides out to join the circle and another moves in to take its place. They're so close. You feel the concussion of their rockets beneath your feet, smell the burning on the air. But even from this short distance, the steady high rattle of the machine guns sounds benign, rather like dice being shaken in a plastic cup. Much closer in, not more than 200 yards from where you stand, is a ruined farmhouse, where a small unit of government soldiers are based. Because this is is a tripwire outpost tied on the invisible line between government and rebel-held territory, the farmhouse is ringed with concertina wire and minefields as soldiers are living mostly underground in crude bunkers and trenches cut from the earth. But on the elevated farm road, you stand on the other side of that front, at the outermost limit of the rebels' quote, liberated zone. Here, all is calm. Despite the nearby gunships and the enemy soldiers in full view at the farmhouse, none of the dozen or so rebels manning the position seem anxious to get into the foxhole they've dug beside the road. Instead, they saunter over the pitted asphalt, smoking cigarettes, chatting, admiring one another's weapons, only occasionally looking over at the now burning village.
1: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
0: To your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line.
2: At first, you probably assume the rebels were government soldiers, for they wear the same uniforms and carry the same weapons as their enemy. But it is those details that provide the essential clue. Where the soldiers are armed with 20 year old guns and clad in mere scraps of uniforms, picked out of some army surplus remnant pile or off the bodies of their dead comrades. The rebels' machine guns and grenade launchers are this year's models, many still glistening with original factory grease, their spotless army uniforms still showing the folds and creases of their shipping crate. If you stay at this place until dusk, you'll see how the system works. Just at twilight, as the helicopter assault on the village gives over to an artillery barrage, three soldiers at the army tripwire post steal out of the farmhouse, and, crouching low, scramble over the open fields to the rebel lines, bringing with them two more grenade launchers to be sold for drugs or food or liquor. The timing of their visit is fitting, for this is a war waged in eternal twilight. On this eerie apparitional landscape, nothing is ever quite what it seems, the lines of battle of who is friend and who is foe constantly changing in the murk. Yesterday, the nearby village was in the liberated zone, was safe, Today it is dying. Perhaps it is because a regimental commander wanted to impress a general, um, or a gunship navigator made a mistake, or because a business deal went bad, or perhaps there is no reason at all, simply because the village is there. You'll hear different theories if you ask around, but no one really knows why, and tomorrow it will be another village's turn, or maybe the strip of road you now stand on, or maybe the soldiers in the farmhouse, killed by their own grenade launchers, And tomorrow you won't know the reason for those deaths either. That's the way it works here. The way it's worked through 50 or 70 or 100,000 deaths. Of all the bad mistakes you can make in this place, this is the first one. To ever imagine imagine there is a pattern, a logic to any of it.
1: Thank you. You bet. Um, Happy note. (laughs) Well, I mean, that has to be, I don't know, but maybe that's, Seems like that has to be what Ukraine is like now, or will be will under be. Russian occupation.
2: Right. So I, so I, I think there's, there's the crucial right. So the, the, I think the crucial difference between the two countries, and I, that's why I talked a little bit about the beginning about the animus that Russians have for Chechens, and and vice versa. By the way, Chechens hate the Russians because they see them as occupiers, going back to the time of the czars. So there there has been this, this huge animosity between those two people for for you know centuries. Ukraine is quite different. And, and that kind of, you know, this is not an original thought on my part, but this is why the Russians really went in kind of half-cocked. Because I think on some level, Putin or the generals around him really believe that, they kind of believe their own propaganda that, oh, Ukraine's not a real country. They're ethnic Russians, they're Slavs like us. There's so much intermarriage between Ukrainians and, and Russians. Um, that that the whole thing will will get pacified very quickly, and we can kind of go in with with kid gloves, so the Russian version of kid gloves, right? Um, and so in that way, they kind of replicated the mistakes of the first Chechen War. They sent in conscripts, um, 17 eight year- old kids who are 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 in for a year um, have very little training. Uh, and it, it's it's amazing they did the same thing of you know, all these soldiers, these kids that have surrendered or or, def- or deserted. A lot of them said they had no idea they were going to to Ukraine. They were thought they were on a training exercise, and this is exactly what they did in in '94 in the first Chechen war. The other bizarre parallel, um, with the first Chechen war, uh, what came up? I mentioned earlier this this assault into Grozny, where about anywhere from eight hundred to a thousand Russian. Soldiers were killed in one afternoon. The following day, uh, the Chechen rebels offered a ceasefire for the Russians to come and collect the bodies of all their dead soldiers. And the Russian commander said, "No, forget it." So the Russians they they left their, their their dead soldiers in the streets of Grozny to be eaten by dogs. And I don't know how many Chechen rebels took, kind of brought this up this this exact incident that. that this, and it was almost like our enemy are not, not human. they would leave the bodies of their own soldiers to be eaten by dogs it 's like who are we fighting against i mean it, it, it was just it was fascinating it just came up again and again that this, this is how this is how pathetic and savage and, and, and primitive our enemy is and the same thing is happening in ukraine there 's all these reports of like you know, Russians just leave the bodies of their own soldiers in the street. You know, you compare that to the American military that will actually take more casualties to recover bodies of their of soldiers in a war zone. Um, so that's kind of so. In that way, you see these really kind of fascinating parallels of and uh, why does you know, the, the Russian, Russian
1: army not collect its dead? I don't understand. That.
2: It's bizarre. It's, it's bizarre. Weird. Yeah, but you know, it, but it's also it it says something about the Russian army. First of all, the Russian army is a third rate army. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, if man to man, the Swedish army would kick the hell out of them. Um, but everyone talks about how being, a, you know, that being a conscript soldier in Russia is is, is essentially going through a year long hazing in which a lot of a lot of guys die, a lot of guys commit suicide because it's it's just it's a brutal brutal organization. Um, so yeah, so so and just this this utter disregard for for you know the, the lives of their own soldiers. So of course their morale sucks, you know. So they're, they're dumped in this place they it, to a degree that these 17 18-year-old kids know anything about Ukraine. They probably have they probably have a Ukrainian grandmother or a great aunt or something because there there has been so much intermarriage between the, the two people. They have no you know they have no idea why babushkas are getting in their face and and you know calling them scum and telling them to go home. Um so it's, it's yes yeah, so it's it really there are some really kind of amazing parallels between the the initial days in in Ukraine and and, and the first Chechen war.
0: I feel like I would I Listening to the description from your from your reading, and also just thinking about literary treatments of this, I do want to mention, um, at least in passing, Anthony Mara's A "Constellation of Vital Phenomena," which is also like which is the literary and fictional treatment of of this conflict in which cross cuts I, I I think across um, different time periods um, related to this conflict. So the first first Chechen war, which we were just talking about, was Yeltsin's war. Although obviously Putin was alive and in Saint Petersburg, well aware was going on. And as we discussed, he goes on to replace Yeltsin and come to power after that series of apartment bombings that you mentioned earlier that were blamed on Chechen, in quotes around this, terrorists in 1999. Um, and you wrote about that for GQ in 2017. Can you tell us, can you lead us through that series of events?
2: Yeah. So uh, so Putin had just been named prime minister, I believe it was a, a month, six weeks earlier by Yeltsin. Um, the third prime minister that year, uh, in a 12 month period, so so everyone is expecting Putin to to just rotate through like the the others had. Um, But instead, very shortly after, there's this series of of apartment building bombings. I think all told, about 380 people were killed um, in four four things where the the, the building just collapsed. The explosives were put in the basement, uh, the whole building pancaked, virtually everybody in these buildings died. Um, it sets off this national panic because there's no pattern to them. It's, they tend to be in, in kind of middle-class to working-class neighborhoods of Moscow and, and, and another city in, in Russia. Um, so it really causes this kind of hysteria. And very quickly, the government blames it on Chechen terrorists. And then Putin uses that as a pretext to, to start the che- Second Chechen War. What I... Discovered. So I went over to Russia in, in 2008 um, because I'd always been hearing stories that like people saying, this isn't what really happened. It wasn't the Chechens. And, and, you know, every there was a there was a basic problem with the logic of it being the Chechens beaten. <laughs> and it's a big problem. Um, they had their independence. Why, you know, it, why would the Chechens start this bombing campaign? They, they had won. They had what they wanted. That the Chechens had—I mean—and they're vicious fighters, and they had done terrorism in the past, and they'd, they'd taken over a hospital and killed a bunch of people. They'd taken over a uh, school and killed people, but so so certainly from a you know from a from a standpoint of of uh, fighting tactics, the Chechens would have done this, but they had no motive to do it. So what I discovered or what I found out it was like there were a couple of people in the KGB um, who had been had investigated the apartment building bombings, and concluded that it wasn't the Chechens at all, that it was actually their own organization in the service of Vladimir Putin, to bring Putin to power. Basically, the Russian version of the Reichstag fire that brought Hitler to power. Um, one of the, there were two, two primary um, KGB colonels who were spearheaded this idea that, that, uh, that Putin was behind it. And one of them was a guy named Alexander Litvinenko who was famously murdered in London. Uh, he was uh, poisoned by KGB, FSB agents, the new KGB, uh, given a fatal dose of polonium. The other one was a man named Mikhail Trapashkin. And so I went to Russia and hung yeah. out with Trapashkin, and he kind of walked me through his his theory of, of what had happened and his evidence of what had happened. Um, and, and kind of... I mean, frankly, kind of risked his life to talk to me. He had, he had he'd just come out, of pr- he had been in prison for, you know, anti-state activities. He'd just come out after three and a half years, I believe. Um, he was, this, at this point, Linvinenko had already been murdered, so Trapashkin could have very easily been next. Um, but he, he made the calculation that by talking to me, it, it was, that somehow maybe that that would made, made him safer, because if something happened to him, people would know why. Uh, or or he was just a you know he didn't care at that point I mean just, he he was ready to go or whatever um, anyway he, he didn't die he he's still alive but so I wrote the article um, and then the 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 legal people at Condé of the parent company of of GQ James Corley, uh, did everything possible to try to kill the article um, and uh, basically. I got hold of a of, of an internal memo at Condi Nast, um, basically saying, you know, we are not, we're not going to advertise this this article in any way. It's not going to appear on the you know, on the on the cover of that month's issue. We're not going to resell it to any you know any of our publications in Europe. It's not going to appear in Russia. It's going to be taken out of the the Russian version of GQ for that month. Um, and we're just going to kind of bury it in, in every way possible. And and I, uh, an editor at GQ, actually leaked this memo to me. And I just thought, you know what? Tell I'm not I'm not going to roll over for this. So, um, I you know these this is supposed to be this great First Amendment law firm re- representing Condé Nast, and here they're doing Putin's work for them. Um, so I went to NPR and and kind of kicked up like. <laughs> kind of caused a lot of problems for coming. It was coming your uh, Zelensky That's moment. Yeah. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> well, but I think that there's right. important. There's an important part of that. There are a couple parallels here about this story that you wrote that I think are really, really useful here. And one of them is that how how easy and it has been all the way up until even now for for Westerners to let Putin do what he's doing because they literally don't want to mess with him. They just don't want the trouble.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Crimea is that way. That's what happened, you know, in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because, I, you know, I think one thing that shocked the hell out of Putin in going into Ukraine, and it frankly shocked me, was seeing how emboldened the Europeans have been. Because clearly Putin's calculus was— you know, he waited till Merkel was off the stage in Germany because Merkel would have would have stood up to him so he didn't know this new guy in Germany the, the french they always kind of you know, like fall away I, I mean i just think he I, I think he mismade this calculus that 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 you know the europeans would cave right and instead the, the, i mean i think the biden administration played this really beautifully because they they kept telling the europeans exactly what was going to happen and Everything did keep happening, just the way they said. And they kind of pushed the Europeans out in front. And so now, and I think it's really interesting what, you almost get this feeling like having finally stood up to Putin, the Europeans now want to do even more, you know? It's like, it's like, it's like they finally stood up to the bully living down the, you know, down the street. And now they want to go, you know, like piss on his front door stuff, (laughs) you know, they, 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 they're, they're out in front of like, you know, of, of cutting them off swift and, and, all, and, and cutting off airspace and all that. It was not the Americans. It was the Europeans. That's kind of fascinating. And, and so, yes, to your thing, I think that, you know, everybody was tiptoeing around this guy for so long. And, and he, he was felt emboldened by that. He, you know, he, it, it wasn't just, uh, I mean, the, the first Chechen war, Crimea, but it was also Ossetia. It was also Georgia. I mean, there's been a number of these. And every time everyone just kind of stood back and, and you know, kind of you know, wrung their hands and that was it. And I think he thought that was gonna happen again.
0: So Putin's planning for the second Chechen war, just a bogus attack that enrages the Russian people, an onslaught of force, lots of propaganda, a popular swell of support for his strong leadership, the destruction of Grozny, which you've already spoken about, seems to be very similar to what he hoped would happen in Ukraine. Is that one of the parallels you're seeing?
2: Oh totally totally and absolutely I mean he you know he's gone to this playbook again and again I mean he you know he he claimed the georgians were uh, you know uh, were you know carrying out a genocide against the ethnic russians in in georgia I mean you know then this is this is the pretext of crimea it's like you know crimea is not part of ukraine it's part of russia so we're going to we're going to take it back and this stuff frankly has played very very well with the the Russian population o- over the years, and if you go back and look at Putin's approval rating, uh, it, it it shot back up uh, when he did the, the the incursion in Georgia, it shot back up when he he grabbed Crimea, so you know it, if. It, I mean, one theory is that every time Putin feels like he's under sort of pressure, that his, his approval rating is dropping, he starts looking around for, like, how to bump it back up. And this this is the playbook that's worked very well for him many times. And, of course, the utter, utter cynicism. He's, he did the same thing with, with you know, supposedly, this, you know, they're going into to Ukraine because the Ukrainians have been attacking Russia, right? I mean, it's it's just like madness, and the, it, you know they're, and it's a you know it's a terrorist regime and all this stuff. It seems crazy to outsiders looking at this, but again, this has played very well for Putin for the last twenty years. And
1: that does seem to me to be where Biden made some good decisions by was- really broadcasting, like, here's what he's going to really do. Right. He's <laughs> going to say Ukraine attacks right. Russia. <laughs> That's right. And that made it really hard for him to run this playbook. He, they That's fucked right. up his playbook. It was That's such right. an interesting use of intelligence.
2: Yeah, it really was. It was. It was. It was kind of. It was fascinating. And I, I think that I, you know, again, I think that so much of that was about sticking the Europeans to the wall, and you know, not, not giving them weasel room. Um, and it, because if you know, if he, if he, they had, I always like to have a little weasel room. <laughs> and you know, if, if I
1: I, no one gives me any
2: weasel room. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if he hadn't done that, I mean, you could just see, you know, the, I. It, they were trying you know some of them were still trying to macron in in France was still trying to say, "Well, we're not really sure what they're going to do and and then if if it all kind of blew up it, it it's it, it, people i think were looking for a way to not have a backbone and i I think there's been a recurrent problem with with a lot of the european countries and 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 weakening the kind of the the western alliance at the same time I mean, so
0: it's also just interesting to think about the ways in which like, so this seems to me like also like another version of, um, years ago I interviewed your brother about um, uh-huh. an article he wrote uh, about Sri Lanka for The New Yorker, and, and just there, and my family is Sri Lankan, and just thinking about, like you have this majority using this rhetoric of, oh, we're a besieged minority,
2: right. and then you
0: have the rest of the world being like, well, we're not going to intervene because like this is the point at which we would intervene, and we haven't reached it yet. Um, right and this sort of like like the notion of ethnic russians um as an as a target for genocide is so ludicrous and
2: right. and he's
0: saying these things that are clearly um clearly untrue um but he's not he's not at all the first person to have done this and there's so many sort of like building blocks that have led to this it's like he's been sitting around waiting right. to see like would this work would this work would this
2: work right that's right, like, that's right. That's right, and, and you know, I mean, and it's you, know, you can say that the you know the Russian people are, are incredibly gullible and stuff, but in fact, it, you know, we've had of our own para- recent parallels in this country of of people buying you know lines of bullshit, um, and it and it's it's not you don't even re- it doesn't require sophisticated propaganda or 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 cutting out you know information sources from the outside. There's people. A lot of people always want to believe this stuff to begin with, and it plays into something in the Russian psyche: this idea of being a persecuted people, and, and it, it's something that goes way, way back. Um, and it, and it, frankly, it's very dangerous. You, and you, you mentioned Sri Lanka; you see the same—you see the same thing uh, among the Buddhists in, in Sri Lanka of, of this idea that. We're besieged, and and this is the enemy within. I mean, it, you know, it, um, Hitler with the Ju- with the Jews. It's it's this it's a, a a constant refrain. It's like, okay, we're a super, you know, we're we're a superior people, but in fact, we are we're being we're being persecuted. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated thing, but it it seems to work really well. You know, my my feeling is Putin made three huge assumptions in going into Ukraine. Uh, one, that the, the, the European and American alliance would would fracture, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't work. And instead, it's, it's it, I mean, he had that very, very wrong, obviously. Um, the second being that I think he really thought that the Ukrainians would, would collapse, that they would cave. And, and, and he was very wrong about that. And so he's really down to his third plank now, which is, can I, can I snow the Russian people? And he can for a while. But what's I think what's going to happen is again it, it has to do with the you know the inter, interconnectedness between Ukraine and Russia. Um, everybody, every Russian has Ukrainian relatives, you know, and and they're going to hear about what's happening there, and you're going to have more and more kids coming back in in in, in body bags, and the, you you just can't. Keep... Not if he leaves them in the street. To well, be that's true. By dogs. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you know, it's it's interesting when, when I was in Chechnya there and the the Russian mothers of soldiers, it's it's, it's a bizarre phenomenon they I've never seen anywhere else. Um, there were Russian mothers and grandmothers coming down to Chechnya and walking onto fire bases, Russian army firebases, and grabbing their kids or their grandkids and just Taking them home, just walking them home, and that, and you're gonna, and and the Russian army will just, they, they, they don't know what to do with these women. Uh, and they were all, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I described I described Chechnya as this horrifying place, which it was, but all of a sudden you'd come across like you know a minibus full of Russian mothers, like on, you know, in no man's land or in the middle of a battlefield, and they're looking for their sons. Um, that's going to start happening. And 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 that is something that he can't bottle up. He, you know, th- those, those mothers uh, of soldiers, they have a, a national platform. So it, it, he's, he's not going to be able to keep this thing like muzzle. Um, and I, I, I think in the long term, you Tactics, I think you're headed for what, like the Second Chechen War, of, of, of just flattening these places. But I don't, I think that his own internal position is going to erode very, very quickly with the Russian people. Um, and it's going to be a combination of the, you know, the, the economic cost that is, has to be hitting him in the head. But it's also going to be the images coming out of Ukraine. And, you know, these are people that, again, they, they didn't care when those images were of, of Chechens getting massacred. They're going to care about the Ukrainians.
0: So, I mean, again, here I'm thinking of the Sri Lankan parallel where, like, the war was so expensive for um, for Sri Lankans and the narrative was, you know, like, this is for our national interests, this is to protect the nation. And um, then, of course, you have, you know, families of, families of soldiers bearing these huge economic costs. And, like, so I'm interested in, like, because before you were talking about his, like, his, his appeal ratings going up every time he does stuff like this. But then at the same time... Um, Like how long, so this, is there, do you have any sense of how long he can sustain this? Like, it's sort of, it's like, um, I don't know, like, I'm not thinking of the right analogy. Like, I don't know, like almost trying to stop an earthquake, like trying to like bind it together, like with the sheer force of your will, but like the tremors and the pressure of that at some point are going to, are going to crack. Because I mean, like what you say, like I'm thinking in in Sri Lanka, there were um, a couple of organizations called um, the Mother's Front and they were in different parts of the country and they did exactly what you're describing, like. Women will go and hunt down their families and be like, "You bring
2: them back." Um, Right, right. Yeah, I think it's gonna. You know, it'll. What's working for him now, and again, I think this is his last plank. Is is, you know, this whole thing of uh, this the West is persecuting us. You know, so that's that, and that works among maybe you know a majority of Russians maybe for a while. It's like, you know, we don't have any food. Our our the ruble is worth a third of what it was last month because. The West is trying to destroy us. At a certain point, though, I don't think that that, it, it, that could work if they're also winning in Ukraine, right? I mean, that people will like, put up with the, the pain because you know, we're, we're reuniting our country and stuff. But you're not going to be able to reunite U- Ukraine. You're going to have to lay waste to it. And so I think that this, I, I just don't see how this works out in any, any good way for him.
1: Well, I mean, that is what's happening now. Grozny, you know, what happened to Grozny is going to ha- is happening in, in in Kharkiv or it's going to happen in Kiev. Uh, it seems like that's what he wants to have happen. But what do you think this? Let's look down the line, right? After these cities are shelled for however much longer he's going to shell them for six months from now. I mean, you know, what is your, your experience in the First Chechen war tell you that like things are going to be like in Ukraine in six months from now. What can you guess? We know we're not right. going to hold you to this, but right. know, we're trying to imagine a future.
2: I don't think he can flatten Ukraine. I, you know, Chechnya was three million, four million people in areas like I said, the size of Connecticut, hated by the by most Russian people. Um, Ukraine is 40, 42 million people interconnected to the Russian people, there's no, you know, built in animus to hate the Ukrainians. Um, So I don't think he can do what he did in in Chechnya. I I mean, sure, he can, I mean, he can wipe out big parts of Kiev and stuff. But, you know, when I say, when I say Grozny was wiped out, I mean, it was, it looked like Stalingrad, right? I mean, it was like flat. So, you know, what we're seeing, I mean, clearly the, the approach he was taking, and again, this is all kind of relative, but You know, we all saw the images of of, the you know the city hall being hit a few days ago, and and these missiles coming in, and and you know the communications tower. But this is frankly, this is kid gloves stuff still at this stage. You know, people are talking about seven, eight hundred dead, and out of a population, you know, nine days into a war where uh, with a population of forty million people, that's real kid gloves stuff so far. And I just don't. I mean, he can sure he can ramp it up. Can he can he flatten Kiev or, or Kharkiv? I don't think so. I mean, even from a logistic standpoint, I don't think there's enough ammunition to do that.
1: Um, <laughs> Plus, it's a, well, I mean, I want to say it's a big country. And right. It has a
2: lot of agricultural land. That's right, yeah. There's
1: lots of places to hide. There's a
2: lot of places to hide. <laughs> there's a lot of places to hide. And, I mean,
1: people who are opposed to that government and opposed the Russian army are going to go hide. Right, that's right. And then fight and then from fight. other places. And fight.
2: You know, you know I, I was talking to somebody, just, you know, talking about what the, the Russian army is like. Even from a standpoint, if you even look at this, this minor standpoint of, like, weapon maintenance, you know, there is part, one of the reasons why, you know, you keep seeing this this abandoned, you know, Russian military vehicles out, you know, on sides of road and everything... So some of them have been abandoned, but some of them, like, literally, there was a, a, a certain it's it's a Grodd missile launcher that it's probably, you know, I don't know, $20 million, $20 million vehicle or whatever. And it was, it was on the side of the road because they don't, they don't move the, the, they have to, like, to, to keep the tires intact, you have to keep moving heavy, heavy vehicles. They never did it. So when they actually, like, take these things down the road, the tires rip apart they left? so there's all yeah. this there's all these so many of the like the tanks and stuff you see it's like because the treads weren't oiled and it's, so it's just like and again like I said this is a third rate military I'm like um,
0: imagining no it's, it's crazy yeah I mean it just it just sounds like it sounds like I'm imagining, you know, at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark when they take, like, the Ark of the Covenant and they, like, wheel it into that warehouse and clearly nothing has been touched for, like, a gazillion years.
2: Right. I'm, like, imagining right.
0: that, like, the Russian weaponry is, like, it's, like, in storage yeah. and no one has maintained it or used yeah. it. And so, okay, that's wild. That's right. um, isn't that, what isn't is that wild? Stra- yeah. like, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like, everything takes more maintenance than you would think. Right. Um, right. And that's always an expense that is, like, hard to calculate for and hard to bear. And then when you take stuff out and it doesn't work. Um, right. What an like that's a what a like what an infrastructure problem for you. I mean, earlier you said the Swedish army would kick the Russian army's ass, and I was like,
2: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 um, and you know it's also what makes them dangerous, and that that was the thing. Like, you know, it's certainly my experience in, in being in Chechnya was that, and part of what you know what I said at the beginning is that you this feeling that any bad thing could happen at, at any moment. A, an undisciplined army is really really dangerous, and the. the the, the most dangerous army is an army that knows it's losing that's when atrocities take place you know i mean that was true with the americans in vietnam it's 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 always true um, there's nothing more dangerous than an, arm, than an army that's losing and and so you you're it's you're going to see so i like like i was saying earlier i don't think you're going to be able to see you're not going to see uh Ukraine turn into a new Chechnya in that way, of just you know, it's going to be steamrolled. But what you absolutely are going to see is all kinds of atrocities, you know, all kinds of civilians being massacred and stuff. And
0: it seems like it, one it, of the, it, of course, one of the strongest voices, the one of the characters who has emerged from this narrative is Zelensky, um, who it seems like everyone in the West has fallen in love with Um yeah, for good reason. Yeah. And there's this kind of like, yeah, this interesting mythology around him. But I right. can't help but remember uh, the fate of Dudyev, who was a former Soviet Air Force general and secularist. Right. And in 91, he became the first elected president of the Chechen Republic, um, which was a breakaway right. region in the North Caucasus. And things did not turn out so well for him.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You, you know that, I mean, he, Zelensky's an actor, right? right. You, I would just wonder how many Hollywood agents are trying to get hold of him and trying to rep him, right? yeah. I mean, again, you know, I, it's, I mean, I'm interested what that calculus is. Is, is, if, I mean, if you're Putin, do you try to kill Zelensky? I would assume, right? I would I assume. It, um, I, there was a report yesterday that
1: he's been. Tra- he, they know of three recent that's assassination attempts. That's attacks. right. Wow. And, like, well, and all of the other know. like
0: Europe and U.S. are trying to like you know keep being like let's extract you, let's extract you, and he's like I'm
1: not going. Yeah, and they have yeah. these paramilitaries. Some of the like the what is it the Wagner Group or something like that? It sounds like uh, uh, there's some huh. weird elite Russian force. I probably got that name wrong. Huh. We'll check it. But there are these smaller elite forces that that I've been hearing mentioned in
2: news reports that have been trying to huh. sort of go after him. Well, it's funny because one I saw one. And some report. of them are Chechen. I was going to say way, yeah. One of them is like Katerov's people. I mean, so yeah. so Putin has used his puppet, this Chechen puppet Katerov. I mean, probably. Um, you know, most of the the, the parliamentary oppositions uh, opponents who've been murdered, uh, probably most of them have been murdered by, uh, you know, or journalists in Russia. Most of them have been killed by the the, the Chechen puppets, um, Katar- Kataravites, They call them. So, ah. yeah,
1: So they they help. They they send in the nasty, tough guys yeah. to, to do that. So yeah, okay, yeah. Uh,
0: Scott, thanks for being with us and sharing this long view. It's so valuable um, to have this perspective. My pleasure. And listeners, we encourage you to go check out all of Scott's books, including The Man Who Tried to Save the World and The Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. Thank you.
2: Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Kniggendorf. To subscribe to our show, Please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. In recent weeks, we've been paying a lot of attention to the news out of Ukraine, so I especially want to point listeners back a couple of weeks to our first Ukraine episode featuring New York Times Moscow bureau chief Anton Trinowski and Yale historian Marcy Shore. That episode was recorded before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then our previous episode was with Katya Soldak, a documentary filmmaker and part of Forbes US who spoke with us about how their site coordinates with Forbes Ukraine and also her family's history and current situation in Ukraine. All of this has really helped me to understand the more recent developments and I hope that it has helped you too. We're watching the news closely and we know that you're with us. Until next time, that's it for Fiction Nonfiction.